I remember so well. Uh, the first time I saw Bill and Lois, we were having a tri-state conference in Lubbock, Texas, in the early days of AA in 1947. I better introduce myself. I'm a drunk and my name is Cersei. And I've been sober since May 10th, 1946. We had this little convention where we were trying desperately to, to get some groups started to hold together to, to stay sober first. But no, when I came into AA here in Dallas, I had the names of four people in all West Texas, from here to L.A. And those four people were the only people that I knew who were in AA. I said, here's a list of all the AAs in all the area out there. Four people. <laughs> so you know what a time we had in the beginning days of AA, especially in West Texas. But on this particular occasion, we called Bill. He was visiting his mother in California. He came on to Phoenix. And we got him to come by Lubbock. And we met him in uh, Amarillo. And a lady from here... Frida J., member of A, early member of AA, went with me to Amarillo to meet them. And uh, although we had seen a scattered picture here and there, it was hard to come by a picture of Bill or Lloyd. You know, it was, we didn't just run out hard and we were an AA in those days. Or especially that drunk. But we discussed how we know Bill and Lloyd when they get off the plane. And then I told Frida, I said, well, I think I can spot him. I think I can spot any drunk. And the plane arrived, and we walked out, and down the ramp came a guy with a big black hat, tall, and his shirt tail was out in the back. And uh, he had been, yeah, I think he had his hat on and took a little nap. Had a big black hat. We still have it here in Dallas. And I told Frida, I pointed out, I said, this is the guy. How do you know? I said, well, he slept in his hat and his wife is 40 feet behind him. <laughs> we got back on the plane and went to Lubbock. And this was the early days of AA when Bill was so concerned about the 12 traditions. We didn't have the 12 traditions then. But his main concern at that time was putting the 12 traditions together right. And then this great moment in 1950 in Cleveland, Ohio, when the greatest moment in my life, I think, outside of meeting Bill Lloyd to begin with. But when we stood with 18 or 20,000 people in the auditorium at Cleveland, and Bill asked us all to stand if we approved the Twelve Traditions, and we stood. And I looked around, and here I was among 18,000 friends. A poor drunk the first time with 18,000 friends. And this is something. And from that day on, it's been a beautiful friendship and a beautiful life. And I, I must, I must... Uh, give a lot of this credit to the beautiful Alanon who 
stuck with us. And in going over these early days of AA, and, and my particular reason uh, for wanting Lois to be with us, it is so important to me and to all of us, I believe, that we have an insight. I, I talk to so many new people who say, how did this begin? How could Lois put up with all these things? How did, how did this hold together and gel and make it what it is today? And I have to believe that if it hadn't been for my wife, I'd have never made it. I know I would. And I have to believe if it hadn't been for Lois, Bill would have never made it. Because at that little coffee table was Dr. Bob, Bill, and Lois pouring the coffee. Those things hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here today sober. That's my belief. So I asked my beautiful wife to meet, to introduce Lois. Will you, honey? This is the dividend of Al-Anon. We hear about the dividend from AA. This is truly a pleasure. Lois does not need an introduction to this group, but it's my very happy privilege to present her to you. We all know her and love her as the wife of a late beloved co-founder of AA. Not only that, she is an illustrious person in her own right. And we are singularly honored that she will join us in our convention here. Lois has given so much of herself of her time and her wisdom to the families of AAs. And for that, we all are so deeply appreciative. And it's with great respect and admiration, and I consider it a great, great privilege to present her to you at this time, Lois W. My cheeks and ears are red. I don't know how to begin after all those wonderful words. But I do know that I'm extremely, extremely grateful to having been invited here and to Cersei's very persuasive arguments, which I resisted for quite a while, but finally couldn't, and I'm so glad that I couldn't. And I want to thank you all for your tremendous hospitality. There's nothing like, I think, Dallas hospitality and joviality and happiness. There's a, a glow about you all that is um, most warming. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all your kindness. And I thank you for your great enthusiasm for carrying on AA and Alamo. People can start a thing, but it can have a still birth if it isn't nourished and carried on with devotion and enthusiasm. And those that do that are really just as important to the movement as the first ones that started it. And speaking of the first ones, I thought maybe I'd tell you a little bit about Eddie, the man who came to Bill. You folks here in Dallas were so very, very good to Eddie. And I know many of you remember him. And I thought maybe you'd be interested to hear a little bit about his 
background and his early life. When I was a young girl, we used to go to Vermont. In fact, all my childhood, we went to a place called Manchester, Vermont, to, for the summertime. My father was a doctor, and we used to go up there for half the, half the year, practically, the children did. And Eddie's family did the same thing. It was a summer resort, very beautiful place. Eddie's um, family had been coming there for years and years. They were an old Albany family. Eddie's grandfather was the mayor of Albany. Eddie's uncle was the mayor of Albany. Eddie's brother was the mayor of Albany. It was a tradition to have a Thatcher, a mayor. But Mrs. Thatcher had, I don't, I can't really say whether they were alcoholics or not, but had a very heavily drinking husband and five very heavily drinking boys. And she must have had a gay old time. <laughs> a picture of Eddie when he was about three feet tall, I guess. <laughs> he was a friend of my brother's, my younger brother's, and they used to do all kinds of mischievous things together. And then one year, the Thatcher family thought it would be good for Eddie if he went to Manchester to the school that was there. It was a boarding school in Manchester. And Eddie's spent the winter and went to school. And it was there that he met Bill. Because Bill was a, had been brought up in Vermont in a very small town, just a few miles away from Manchester. And he went to this high school, boarding school, too, and they became quite chummy. The town of Manchester has Oh, I can't tell you how many <laughs> stories about Eddie's escapades. He was always doing something. Uh, as I say, the, all the brothers drank, but Eddie was the youngest, and he was certainly a real alcoholic. <laughs> and he was always into some kind of a big mess of some sort. I remember one, um, one time he was driving along, and this was way back in the early days of automobiles, just driving along and just casually went into somebody's window, through the window. The front wheels of an automobile sat on the, on the kitchen floor. And Eddie got out of the automobile very nonchalantly and said, how about a cup of coffee? <laughs> When I was thinking what I'd say here today, I, it occurred to me, well, maybe that's why all AAs like coffee so much. It's all the way back then. <laughs> and Bill and Abby did a lot of drinking together later. I remember one time Bill stopped over in Albany to see Abby. <clears throat> and at that time, the... Um, Manchester had just started to open, it wasn't quite ready yet, an airport 
They thought um, it would be nice to have the wealthy people who had planes of their own have a place to land. So a small airplane, airfield, was being opened. And <clears throat> Ebby, of course, knew all about this. So when Bill stopped in Albany to see him, he said, let's go to Manchester and let's hire an airplane and we'll be the first people to land on that new airfield in Manchester. Maybe Brian Young stop and go back and tell you a little bit more about Eddie's background and say that his, his family were quite a well-to-do family. And they were in the um, stove building, uh, making foundry, stone, stove foundry, I think they called it. And um, Eddie had gone through that from top to bottom, as all the brothers had, for the experience so they could manage it. But he hadn't any other business experience or any other business training. He'd just gone through high school, but he had read a lot. And he had been left, really, uh, unfortunately, he had been left a lot of money. And that can do really, a, I think, a very great deal of harm. Anyway, Evie hadn't ever had to work, so he didn't know how really to to work, didn't know where to start or how to begin. So the, high, the chartering of a plane wasn't anything too much in those days for Evie to do. So they chartered this plane and called up the people in Manchester and told them that they would arrive. Well, this was a very great excitement for the town. So they got out the band and they got on welcoming committee. And Bill and Evie, of course, had a bottle or maybe two or three with them on the plane. So when they arrived, they were completely out and just fell out of the plane. So that was their arrival. This was to music to the band. <laughs> Speaking of music, I've enjoyed the organ that I've been hearing being played here all the time during this, um, both last night and today during this luncheon. Um, well, they, Bill and Ebby had a lot of other experiences together. Um, Ebby used to come to New York and see us, but he never arrived unless he was drunk. But then, one day, Ebby called up Bill, and Bill was sitting in the kitchen with a pitcher. Somehow or other, he thought if he put pineapple juice with gin, that I wouldn't object to it so much. And he put it in the pitcher. Anyway, Bill, um, Ebby called up Bill and said he wanted to come over and see him, so... When Eddie arrived, Bill was flabbergasted to see him because Eddie's eye was clear. He wasn't drinking. He hadn't been drinking, apparently. And his thinking was straightforward. And 
So Bill asked him about how come, Eddie, Eddie, you're not drinking. And Eddie said, no, he'd come especially over to see Bill to tell him about this new experience that he'd had. And that he got religion. Well, Bill didn't have religion, at least so-called religion at that time. And he just, well, he rebelled at the thought of it. Ebby, religion. Well, then Ebby told him about the, about the Oxford group, that the members of which had saved him from going to jail. He had done some thing or other, I don't know what, and he was uh, about to be committed when a couple of friends of his who belonged to the Oxford group had pleaded with the judge and asked him to please let them have Ellie, that um, they thought they could, they could help him. And so Ellie had come to New York with these friends, and he was living then in what was called Calvary Mission. The Calvary Church in New York on 21st Street was a was the head of the Oxford Group movement in America. And this uh, mission was run by the, by the church and by the Oxford Group. And after Bill and Ebby's talk together, Bill, of course, was tremendously impressed. And I came home and I saw Ebby. We talked all, we talked together for quite a while, the three of us. And as I say, it made a tremendous impression upon Bill. But he kept on drinking. And after a day or so, he thought, well, I've got to find out more about this. And so he started off for the Calvary mission. But of course, he had to be reinforced before he could go. And along 23rd Street, the mission was down on the east side, east end of 23rd Street, in New York, there were many, many bars, and he stopped in most of them on the way down to the mission. And in one, he was standing next to somebody, and he asked him about it, and he said, I'm a, he asked him, this man, what he did for a living, and he said, I'm a fisherman. And somehow or other, the word fisherman struck a chord in Bill's mind. And he said, that's it, I'm on the way to the mission, fishers of men. Come with me, we'll go down to this Calvary mission. So Alec was also a tent maker, I believe, <laughs> um, hitched on to Bill, and they went down to the mission. And of course, everybody saw them coming, quite flabbergasted, and didn't know just what he'd do with them. And they were having a meeting. I guess they had a meeting every night at the mission, where people got up and went to the altar and gave themselves to Christ. And the, the leader of the meeting asked if there was anybody that wanted to come up. And Bill started up. Well, Abby and anybody, somebody else that was on the other side, both grabbed Bill's coattails because 
Or maybe his shirt tails. Maybe his shirt tail honey. Because <laughs> his shirt tail almost always was hanging out. Anyway, they uh, grabbed onto him, but they couldn't keep him. And um, he got up in the front. And really, in very great sincerity, did hand over his life to Christ. And then went home, but he brought Alec home with him. And Alec lived with us for many months. <laughs> um, but Bill still kept on drinking. But he kept thinking this thing over in his mind and realizing he had enough sense to realize that he couldn't really think it out. What had happened to Abby? Well, he still drank. So he went to the hospital to get the alcohol out of his system so he'd be able to think clearly. And as you probably all know, because I'm sure you've all read about his spiritual experience in the book, in the big book, Bill's life really was changed from that moment. And he had this tremendous moving experience. And when I went to see Bill, I knew something much bigger than he had had gotten a hold of him. And I never had had a doubt about his taking another drink. I was sure that he was through with liquor forever. Well, that brings me up really uh, to about the um, first days of AA, but not really. But I think I'll go back now and tell you maybe a little bit of my own side of the experience, side of the drinking experience. When Bill and I were first married, we of course were terribly happy. But before that, when we were engaged, he never took a drop of to drink. His father had had too much to drink most of his life, and his grandfather before him. And he'd been warned. His mother and father were separated. Mostly because of alcohol. And he had been warned that he should never take a drink because something awful might happen. And somehow or other he, he believed them. And I was very proud when we were engaged of telling people about how wonderful he was because he'd go to the saloons, as they called them in those days, with the boys and take ginger ale, or sarsaparilla, root beer, or some soft drink of the town. But then the war came along, and Bill had gone to a, a military school, and so he was a young officer in the war, and stationed in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Now, my, um, New Bedford was Cotton Town, and there was a lot of money there, and a lot of society, and the society ladies used to like to invite the officers of, from the post to cocktail parties. 
And I always like to kid Bill about he could resist the boys, but when the girls offered him drinks, that was too much. So Bill started drinking. And after we were married, when I moved up there, Bill rented a small apartment, furnished apartment, and I moved up there. And um, <clears throat> of course, we continued to go to some of these cocktail parties. And the first time I ever saw Bill drunk, or the first time I ever saw him drink, and the first time I ever, he ever, I ever did that, he got drunk, terribly drunk. And the boys had to take him home. And they came to me afterwards to take me home because they wanted to look after him. They put him in bed and they got a big bucket and put it by his head. So when I came home, that was what greeted me. But he didn't drink too much in those days. He, but he always got drunk. He never had any social drinking. It was never any fun to drink with me <laughs> with Bill at all. <laughs> so that, um, as I say, I wasn't too worried about it. For one thing, I thought I'd be able to fix it. <laughs> it never occurred to me but that living with me would give him enough real purpose in life so that he wouldn't need any artificial stimulant. <laughs> but, as time went on, he got worse and worse. And as time went on, we had no children. Things began to look very, very desperate. And I realized my whole purpose in life, as there were no children to bring up, would be to help Bill try to get over this terrific, what I thought was a habit. And he thought, of course, that he could stop any time he wanted to. And he wanted to um, only halfway uh, for quite a long time. But finally, after he lost job after job, he knew that he wanted really to stop. And I think there's nothing sadder in this world than to see a person with such wonderful potential so beaten down. Bill got so he wanted more than anything in this world to stop. He was so sincere, so anxious about it, he'd write in the Bible. My dear wife, I promise never to take another drink. He did this, I can't tell you how many times. He'd write me letters. How he never, never wanted to take another drink. But he was drunk in a few hours, perhaps, after that. And he was just terrifically confused and despairing. And we decided that we'd try to fight this thing together. But I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know how. I just knew I loved him and that I believed that he could get well. I didn't call it an illness, but 
It seemed as if it must be something of sort. Well, then this wonderful experience at the hospital happened. And Bill thought, well, goodness gracious, if this has happened to me, why can't it happen to others? I must go out and help all these old friends that I've that been drinking with. They must, they must help, too. And so he went out on the highways and the byways, and he brought everybody to our house. We were living in Brooklyn. <laughs> he brought everybody to our house. We were, my father had lived in them, one of those old brick houses in the city. Um, it has four stories. And um, my father, the mortgage company had gotten the house, and the mortgage company let us live there for $20 a month after my father had left. So we had plenty of room, and we filled, he filled the house with drunks. I, of course, by this time, had had to make all these decisions. I had to be nursemaid, mother, and a financier. <laughs> I had to support Bill, of course. He wasn't able to do anything at the time Abby had come to him cut sit in the kitchen and drink. He was afraid to go out because he was afraid the police would get him. So, <clears throat> I was still working, of course, after he sobered up. And after he filled the house with drunks. So we really had quite a household. We had, there were so many um, inspiring stories about that those days. There's so many ridiculous, so many tragic things that happened. One man committed suicide in our house. Another man chased chased down another one around the whole house with a carving knife. We had innumerable adventures of one sort or another. But so a few of those people, very few of them, really stayed sober. We were trying to do it the wrong way, really. We were trying to, to give them these things, give them the, the room and board. Not always board, but often board. And Bill was preaching to them, really, as he said himself, a little too much. He, this wonderful spiritual experience that he had set him apart, he felt. And so he was talking a little bit down to these people. And there are one or two of them around now who are still alive that live there in Kitten Street. But most of them stayed sober for a little while. Alec lived there a long time and then left and came back drunk and wanted money and I wouldn't give it to him. And I've always felt very badly about that somehow or other. And we never saw him after that. And Ebby lived with us for a long time. One of the saddest days was after about two years of Ebby's being in the Oxford group, Ebby got drunk. And that, of course, was a terrific calamity to us. And oh, so many really wonderful things happened, too. 
But then Bill began to feel that it was time that he got back into the business world and did some brought in some cash to the household. So he got a job um, as an investigator. He owned, I'm a little vague about this even now. Um, he went to Akron um, where there was a, um, oh dear, well, so, several of the stockholders, there was a stockholder fight about who should um, own the company. And um, I can't think of the legal term of it now. But um, Bill was trying to um, get the stockholders to vote one way. And he didn't have any luck, and he spent all his money, and he only had ten dollars left. And the meeting went, of course, against against him. So he was very blue, and he was walking around the lobby of the hotel there, the Mayflower Hotel, wondering whether to go and get a drink. The bar was at one end of the lobby, and there was a church directory at the other end. And he looked at the church directory, and he thought, well, maybe, maybe if I call some some of the old Oxford Group people, maybe I can get in touch with them, and maybe they can help me. So instead of taking a drink, he called up. He looked down the name of the, of the ministers, and he picked one out because it had a funny name, the Reverend Tunks. So he called, Bill always liked names. He loved funny names. <laughs> so he called up the Reverend Tunks just because it was a funny name. I mean that he chose that one because it was. Well, the Reverend Tunks turned out to be a very wonderful person, and he knew quite a lot of Oxford group people, and he, gave, he put him in touch. Gave him ten names. Well, every um, Bill, when he called these people, said, I'm a drunk from New York and I want to talk with another drunk. It wasn't really um, too much of an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, most people were, were very busy this afternoon or the weather wasn't suitable, or something or other, somebody was sick. So he didn't get any of these ten names, until finally, he, he came to the name of Cybeling, Henrietta Cybeling. But he knew that Cybeling was a big name in Akron, it was a tire company, and he couldn't imagine what Mrs. Cybeling would, could, how she'd be interested in a, I drunk to New York wanting to talk to another drunk. But he called up Henrietta. And strangely enough, Henrietta was interested, and she understood exactly what he meant when he said that he wanted to talk to another drunk. And she said, I think I have just the person for you. And she said she'd call him. So she called up Dr. Bob. And Bob, this was Mother's Day. And of course, Bob wasn't in any fit condition to go to Henrietta's. So Anne, Annie Smith, Bob's wife, said they were sorry, but they couldn't come. But um, as it was Mother's Day, um, Bob had brought her a plant, put it on the table, 
but Bob himself was under the table. <laughs> so, did they try and come tomorrow? So they did. And Bill and Bob had a long, 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 long talk there. Bob, very um, impatiently in the beginning, because he wanted to get back and drink, but finally most, became most absorbed. So that's really where the two AA founders met. And AA, of course, had its ups and downs. It took quite a long time, the early days, to get started. There wasn't any literature. There wasn't any means of communication from one group to another unless you went there yourself. So there was a lot of traveling in the old days between the groups. I'll get back to my own reactions. Um, of course, I was terribly happy that this wonderful thing had happened to Bill. And I didn't realize that as time went along that I was getting all kinds of queer reactions. It took me quite a long time to rebound from that cloud nine in the beginning. But I did, and I realized I wasn't anywhere near as happy. Why wasn't I happy? I couldn't understand it. Here this wonderful thing had happened that I'd been working for my whole married life. This was 17 years afterwards, by the way. And why wasn't I happier? So, one day, Bill said to me, let's get ready and go to the meeting. These were the Oxford group meetings that we used to go to. And I had a shoe in my hand, and I took it and threw it at him just as hard as I could. And I said, damn your old meetings. <laughs> well, I think... I was more surprised at myself than he was. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why I reacted so violently to such a simple remark as he said, let's hurry up and go to the meeting. Well, it took me a long, long time to figure it out and to realize it, but this was the start of my thinking a little bit about myself in relation to Bill, in relation to other people, and into in relation to God. I had taken myself for granted. I thought I was tops. I had both the negative and positive result of, <clears throat> of uh, trying to help him. I mean, um, I worked so hard, but I felt I was a failure. And I hadn't done for Bill what a wife with love should have been, should have done. In my family, when I was brought up as a child, we were a most loving family, and we felt that love 
I had to make my own decisions and not depend upon Bill so for my whole life as I had before. And I would, would tell um, these groups when we traveled around about this. And then, of course, AA began to really grow and literature began was written and it wasn't quite so necessary for us to travel around although we love to do it still and did a lot of it for many for many years but the literature was a tremendous help and places like California could start on the literature alone without any personal contact and then as Tracy was telling you about the traditions on how Bill was so anxious to have them passed. And then Bill got another idea. He thought that AA should have a conference of delegates. That the management of AA's affairs should be in AA's hands. So he took a trip around the country by himself. And this must have been in 49. By himself, I mean, I didn't go with him. Um, to sense the feeling of the, of the country, the groups in the country, about having a conference of delegates. And he traveled all through the United States and Canada. And to his surprise, he found several groups of the wives of AAs. And they'd invited him to their meetings. And this was quite a, quite a surprise. He hadn't realized there were so many. And these had developed spontaneously. They had developed the way I had developed to realize that I needed the 12 steps. And they had developed perhaps some because Annie and I had told them about it, about our experience. And some of them were just what we later called coffee and cake groups that were just then uh, organization, if you want to call it that, was just, they just helped AA hang out pregnancy in the club and do, make the coffee and things of that sort. They didn't have any spiritual program of their own. So when he came back from this trip, he um, took me aside and told me that he thought that, that the families of alcoholics needed a fellowship similar to AA that could uh, a central office where people could write in and find out about it where desperate wives could write where groups could find out about other groups a central office that would bring these groups into some sort of unity so he asked me if I would start such a thing So, to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't want to. I, I had been with Bill through so much in the um, early days of AA, and we just recently moved to the country to a house of our own, which we hadn't ever had before. And I wanted to work in my garden and make slip covers for the sofa. I didn't want to take time. I mean, I 
I felt I'd done the job, I think. <laughs> but I was really only starving. But when he um, convinced me of it, and I started, I became wholly absorbed. And did the very best I could. And Bingham, another Anne, started um, the Alamon office with me. Alamon Central Office. We called it the Clearinghouse then. We wrote to AA, and to our surprise, quite a number of wives had written the AA office wanting to be registered. Well, the AA office, of course, is a place that registers only alcoholics. They didn't have any facilities for registering families. So, when we said that we would like to have those names and we would register them, that was, that was just fine with them. So they gave us 87 names of people that had written into the AA office about help for the families. So we wrote to these 87 names and 50 of them said yes, they'd like to join a fellowship of the families of alcoholics. So that really was the beginning of Alamon. But it was really Bill's idea to begin with. And I think if AAs, more AAs can realize that it was, they'd be more enthusiastic in the beginning about Alamon. <laughs> because Alamon, so many, really does, um, does for the homes what Bill and I were so, so very um, concerned about in the early days because when the AA was sober and had joined AA, the family wasn't always happy and we couldn't understand why this wasn't. We would think with this wonderful program that the family should be happy. But it was a one-sided affair. It needed both partners working together and of course that's what Alamon has done and I hope these two fellowships will go along hand in hand for as long as God shall need them thank you